So if you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 2 as we complete that chapter. We'll be picking it up this morning in verse 42. And I will be reading that scripture for us, and then you will be able to follow along up here on the screen, or of course in your own Bible if you have it in front of you. So I will begin by reading the scripture this morning. Acts chapter 2, picking it up in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who had believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Lord, we've come to your word this morning. We trust that you will speak and minister. And so, Lord, as we've opened our heart to you and we've worshiped you and we've been seeking you and crying out to you during these few minutes we've been together We trust that you've heard and that you have seen, and more importantly, Lord, that you care. And so as we open your word together, minister to us, we pray our hearts are open to all that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through the book of Acts. We just started a few weeks ago. In the last two weeks, we've spent time going through Uh, this Pentecost Day sermon, the the birth of the church as the Spirit of God came upon the church. And so uh, you can go back and listen to that if you've missed any of that. But as we come to the end of this chapter here, uh, going back really to verse 40, and with many other words, uh, he, that is Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And then the next verse that we read, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. You know, one of the reasons we had shared at the beginning of uh, coming into the book of Acts from the book of Matthew that we wanted to be here was... I think we've just sort of lost something through these last two years with COVID, and there's been so many challenges within the church at large, and I think our our definition and our understanding of church has probably become muddled and muddy, and I think we need to clarify that and kind of blow the chaff away and and blow the smoke and the fog away and, and just get refocused on who and what the church is. And in fact, in case you were wondering, uh, when I was away a couple of weeks ago and Pastor Mitch spoke on uh, seven metaphors for the church, that was by design as we were just trying to sort of help you understand and give you a a purpose and a background and understanding who and what the church is. And so we come to one of the most significant passages this morning on defining the church here in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Now, something I, I want to say, and I've heard, I've heard this for many, many years um, in schools of theology and all of that, that when we are in the book of Acts, that we don't necessarily, we can't come here and find doctrine. The doctrine are, are in the epistles, the teaching of Jesus, and the book of Acts is really more of a historical document. Well, the book of Acts certainly is a historical document, however... I don't think that we can say, you know, kind of in the sense of, if you'll pardon the expression, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that the book of Acts doesn't contain any doctrine. I think it's full of doctrine. And as we come in particular to this first day, the birthday of the church, and the first real manifestation as the church, as the church comes into existence, I think it's incredibly healthy and important for us to look at these passages and understand what happened and why. And you know, what things perhaps did God do just for that period of time as he was building and establishing the church from scratch, from the ground up, and what things, you know, perhaps maybe those practices don't necessarily translate over to us today, but the principles behind those practices do. 
So as we've come into this verse here, verse 42 of chapter 2, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, I think we have four major marks for the church. And so what are those those major marks in the first manifestation of the church? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That was highly important because there was no New Testament. It was just beginning to happen. So they had the Old Testament and all of those scriptures that pointed to Jesus and who he was and what he would do. They had the life of Christ himself, which these apostles had been eyewitnesses to for three years. And now we have the Spirit of God speaking forth the truth of God in such a way that now it's being captured and starting to be written down. But at this point in time, there was no New Testament. And so it was highly important that the church gather and hear the teaching directly from the mouths of the apostles who were Spirit-filled men who were there to bring the Word of God to the people of God. And to build the foundation of the church, we have this beautiful verse in uh, Ephesians that tells us that the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is what the church was built upon. So we'll go into that a little bit, but the apostles' doctrine was mark number one. Mark number two was this thing called fellowship. You know, sometimes we throw that term around loosely and we just think, hey, anytime we get together with, with a couple of people, that's fellowship. Not true. We'll talk about that in a moment. The breaking of bread, uh, I think referring specifically to the Lord's table, but also to whenever we share a meal together uh, and we sit down and pray, we can come together in the presence of the Lord and around the, the idea that God is present among his people. And then prayer or prayers as it's called here. So let's go through this a little bit. They continued steadfastly. So one of the early marks of the church as the Spirit of God was doing this new work, and of course he had just established the church, the gospel was preached in this amazing manner as we've been studying the last couple of weeks, as these people were filled with the Spirit of God and he came upon them and enabled them to be his witnesses. On that first Sunday where this gospel was preached on Pentecost Sunday, we just saw last week that 3,000 souls were added to the church. And it says now that, you know, they've got to figure out what to do. What what do we do with this faith? What do we do with this understanding? What do we do with this change that we sense inside of ourselves now that the Holy Spirit has come to, to be with his people, to be among his people? And the first thing they're doing is they're continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This idea of continuing steadfastly and I do think this is something that the modern church has lost, is something that we need to consider. So just to read a couple of things to you, uh, one definition means to endure, to tarry, to remain somewhere, uh, to cleave faithfully to someone, and referring to those who continually insist on something or staying close to someone. So they had been introduced to Jesus through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and something had changed within them. And with this new understanding, with this new birth in Christ, remember Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, he says, this is being born again. This is the Spirit of God entering the life of someone. This is, if we were getting doctrinal and theological, this is regeneration when the Spirit of God comes into a sinful person and enters their life. And he now becomes their God and we become his people. You know, I was thinking about this in my own life. um, And perhaps you have your own experience if you know the Lord this morning. I came to know the Lord when I was pretty young, around 10 years old. But no one ever discipled me. And I know that that my faith was genuine. I I know that I was saved and I've, I've thought about that and gone back over it a number of times, and I know that's when I was saved and when the Spirit of God entered my life. But I also, because of the complete lack of discipleship in my life until I was uh, around 18 and went to my freshman year in college and actually came back to the Lord because I had been away from Him for many years. Yeah, I went to church, but my heart was far from Him. But I knew I was saved, so it was kind of a weird situation. 
But when I got introduced to this group of Christians on the college campus and they began to talk to me, you know, they shared the gospel with me, not knowing if I was saved or not. And I said, yes, I believe that. But then they talked to me about the spirit of God and the word of God and the importance of getting grounded in God's word. And so I began to do that. And, uh, and all of a sudden, my life just took on new meaning and new purpose. And I couldn't wait, even though I was at, at college and I had classes to go through and homework to do and all of that, I couldn't wait for those moments when we gathered. We had college campus meetings on Thursday nights. And I, I forget what we called that night, uh, but it was just a night of, we came together, we found this little, you know, the, the, back then it wasn't as much, you know, persecution and thinking about, you know, separation of church and state and all that, that stuff. And we just went and said, hey, can we meet in this, uh, you know, auditorium, you know, teaching auditorium? They said, yeah, the building's open. Go ahead. There's night classes. As long as you're not disturbing anybody, have at it. We'd we'd have routinely at least 100 students packed in that room. We were the only college uh, Christian ministry on the college campus. But I remember those days because it was just so salient as we worshiped together. And there was a strong emphasis on worship. This was in 1978. Yes, I'm, I'm old. I get it. Um, but as we did that, it was so real. And we had these small group Bible studies and one of the campus leaders would just bring something from the word. It wasn't really a sermon. It was, you know, just, they were just teaching whatever God had spoken to them and their time alone with God. And then there was, you know, strong encouragement, find a good local church and get plugged in. And we did that. And, and, and the stuff we're reading here in Acts 2, we read this. And we believed it. And we said, we, we should do this. And so we found ways to do this. We didn't care if other people weren't doing it. We did it. And so that's what we did. And we began to continue steadfastly in the teaching of the scriptures. And you say, well, among a bunch of college students aged, you know, 18 to 22, who was the leader? The leader was whoever God appointed to be the leader. You know, it was uh, organized and it wasn't organized. It was chaotic, but it was amazing. And so as we continued steadfastly gathering together, just as these people did, you know, one commentator pointed this out, and I thought that it was so important for us to understand this. The proof of reality is in continuance. The reality of their profession was continuance. So these people continued steadfastly. They, they were born again. The Holy Spirit had changed their lives. This knowledge of Jesus Christ had changed their lives. And they were hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And they wanted to know more. And so it was through the apostles' doctrine that they were taught. Well, what was the apostles' doctrine? No doubt the apostles' doctrine was just like Jesus said, when he was on the earth and when he was teaching, he was drawing upon the Old Testament scriptures, looking at the Old Testament prophecies, saying, I am fulfilling those prophecies. And then no doubt they were remembering as eyewitnesses the things that Jesus said. Remember, Jesus said in the upper room discourse, John uh, 13 through 17, and we find it in the other gospels sort of scattered about, that as Jesus was with his disciples on that last night spending time with them, he said, I'm going to send the Spirit. When I go away, I will send the Spirit, and he will testify of me, and he will bring to your remembrance all the things that happened. And so it was important for these people to gather. I mean, imagine going, uh, hey man, I'm going to Peter's Bible study tonight. Tomorrow night, you know, I'm going to James's Bible study just to be able to have that available. And so these guys were going and the apostles were teaching the word of God. They were uh, giving witness to, to, you know, so we were with Jesus, right? And this crazy thing happened. And he told us to go out and to do this and to do that. And and it it was crazy, but we did it. And when we did it, he blessed. What he said happened. And we got back to be with him and he was there healing somebody. This one time we were there and he, he, there's this blind man and he was spitting in the mud and making a little mud cake and putting it on his eyes and it was the, the craziest thing. But the guy's sight was restored. We were with him when he raised up a little girl who had just died. We were there when she breathed her last. And he said, Tabitha Kalumi, get up. And she got up. And they were telling these stories and they're saying, Jesus is real. And we saw it and we witnessed it. And he's now here with us through his spirit. And that's what just happened. 
And so as they were teaching, they were shedding light on the Old Testament scriptures, but they were bringing to, to light what Jesus had done because they had remembered it. The Spirit of God was giving them remembrance. Someone has, I think, wisely said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And that's what these apostles were doing. Now I'm going to stop and plug one of my pet peeves and you can, you can talk to me later about it. And that's the issue of a printed Bible versus the virtual Bible that we all have on our phones. And that's okay. You know, we have it. It's a tool. It's a wonderful thing. But I just like to encourage people. And when I have an opportunity to sit down with people, especially new believers or young believers, I want to give them a Bible and I want them to put a little tab at the front and learn where the index is and learn their way around the scriptures. And I I think it's important. The most important thing is that we're reading the scriptures and learning them and allowing the Spirit of God to pour into us. So if you're using a virtual Bible, that's okay. But my encouragement is get a a real Bible. Get a printed Bible. Uh, Learn your way around it. Uh, Write in it. Mark in it. Make notes in it. Uh, It's often been said a Bible that's falling apart belongs to a person who is not. And I believe that. So there's my plug for the real Bible versus the virtual Bible. And uh, don't hate me. Okay. So the Apostles' Doctrine. They were teaching the Scriptures, giving the Word of Jesus. And then it says, and fellowship. So this word fellowship, the Greek word is the word koinonia. The word koinonia means community, association, communion, a joint participation. There's a very key word, participation. A sharing together, an intimacy even. And so koinonia, from a biblical point of view, is a coming together and a participating together. And so what these people were doing were not just getting together and having a meal and whatever they were doing. But they talked about Jesus. True koinonia involves spiritual communion. True koinonia, true fellowship involves coming together uh, around the name of Jesus, around the word of God. Yes, we can get together and have a meal together and we should do that, absolutely. But, you know, there should be more than just a prayer. You know, we we call it today saying grace when we eat our meal. But as we come together, there should be some sharing together around the person and the life of Christ and the word of God in order for it to be called fellowship in a true biblical sense. Uh, One person uh, wrote this about the term fellowship, another evidence of new life was the desire of the new believers to be with the people of God and to share things in common with them. There was a sense of being separated unto God from the world and a community of interests with other Christians. So fellowship, church, if you will, is coming together. And I think this is where COVID sort of did a number on us, you know, If we come together and we sing and we do all these things, we're going to share our germs and people are going to get sick and all that. And, you know, you know, the virus is real. Germs spread. That's all true. But I, I think so much of what happened was in these past couple of years was just, in a sense, very demonic in keeping the church from coming together. Forget your opinions, you know, for the time being about, you know, all of that stuff just, you know, come together as a church. And I'm so grateful that God has provided the virtual fellowship, meaning we're able to broadcast the services live and people who, you're homesick or you're traveling, you're able to watch it. You know, the Sunday I wasn't here, we were watching it from Italy, you know, at 4 p.m. when we came on live here at at 10 a.m. It's a wonderful, blessed thing that we can do that, but it cannot, it does not, it will not replace church. It can't, because the church, by definition, uh, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, and I think the best definition I've ever heard of it is the gathering together of the called out ones. 
So church in its essence and its core is the gathering together physically of the people of God. And it doesn't matter what building it's in or what house it's in, wherever it is, it's just, hey, get together. Get together in the name of Christ. And so that's what these people did. And they established the foundation. Now, one person said this again about fellowship. The Christian life is meant to be full of fellowship, of sharing with one another. We share the same Lord Jesus. We share the same guide for life. We share the same love for God. Indeed, the scriptures tell us we love him because he first loved us. We share the same desire to worship him. We share the same struggles of life, and we all have them. We share the same victories, the same defeats. We share the same joy of living for him. And we share the same joy of attempting to communicate the gospel to the lost and the dying world around us. And so fellowship is important. The apostles' doctrine is important. Being steadfast and coming together as a people of God is so important. The third thing that's mentioned is the breaking of bread. And of course, in the Jewish context, the breaking of bread coming together over a meal was a highly important thing because, you know, in their time, in their world, now these would defy our, uh, you know, Emily Post guidelines for good gatherings today, uh, they allowed double dipping. There were sauces in the middle of ta- the table, and they would break off their bread and dip it in and take a bite. They didn't turn it around to the other side that they hadn't bit. They just dip it back in again and take another bite, and that's the way they all ate. And we'd look at that and say, oh, it's terribly insanitary. That is a COVID nightmare waiting to happen. But that's what they did. And in the Jewish mindset, sharing together, and they understood, hey, we're sharing germs. But they also understood that the bread I'm eating and the bread you're eating is the same bread. And as I ingest that bread and as you ingest that bread, we're, we're partaking of the same bread of the same loaf. And so it was, it was a mystical, but it was a real thing for them. So their coming together as they broke bread was so important. It meant something to them to eat with someone. That's why often we read that a, a Jew, a kosher Jew, would not eat with a Gentile because they didn't want to be a part of them. But now the gospel is changing all of that. And they understand it doesn't matter. You know, later in the scriptures, we find the words, you know, Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond, slave, free, doesn't matter. All are one in Christ. So this coming together, this breaking of bread was the meal, but what they did is they incorporated within the meal the Lord's table. In fact, we have the words recorded for us as often as you do this around the Lord's table. And the early church, some of them did it every day. Some of them did it every week when they came together. Every Sunday they had the Lord's table together. There's nothing wrong with that. And so fellowship was important to them. The breaking of bread together was important to them. And then it says in prayers. So what happened in prayers? What is this talking about? Well, prayer in its most basic definition is simply talking with God. There's a number of different words used for prayer in the New Testament, Uh, The general one is this Greek word prashukamai, which simply means it's a general worship. It's just turning your heart to the Lord. It's it's praying, it's praising, it's singing. It's really everything kind of rolled into one. And then we see other words, you know, supplication, intercession. Those are different words, and they mean those different things. You know, uh, intercession is praying for other people. Supplication is bringing your needs, you know, before God. So there's different aspects to prayer. But... Someone pointed out, and I think it's so true, that we have sort of the idea of private prayer and public prayer. Now, hopefully you've been in small groups before as a believer where there's been prayer, where you maybe you've been in a circle together. And then sometimes you just pray, just say, hey, look, let's just pray. We're not going to share prayer requests. We're just going to pray together. And then other times we might share, hey, do you have any, any needs, anything we can be praying for for you? And we, we pray in that way. But there's also private prayer. So I want to start there with the issue of private prayer. And let me ask you a question with respect to your own private prayer, which is, what do you do? How do you do it? 
How, how do you pray? Do you, do you go into a closet and close the door and sit in there in isolation? Uh, in what manner or how do you practice that? And I don't think there's any one right or wrong way to do it. But I do think that when we're talking about prayer, there's an idea, there's a sense in which we need to get alone with God. And we, we just talk to him, just like we have a conversation with anybody else. But as with a conversation, there's a, there's a point in the conversation where we're talking, but then there's a point in the conversation where we're silent and we're listening to the other person. And we need to do that in our relationship with God. So private prayer, I think public prayer presumes private prayer, and private prayer leads to and points to public prayer. You see, sometimes I've been in groups and people are like, yeah, I don't like to pray out loud in groups and all that. Maybe that's shyness or uncomfortableness, whatever it might be. However, maybe it's also a lack of familiarity with being in the presence of God and talking to him on your own. Because I think if we have that connection with him, if we have a time of private prayer, then public prayer is just doing it with other people. It's doing it publicly as opposed to privately. Um, And some people think, well, I can't pray eloquently. You know, I can't stand up here and, you know, that doesn't matter. No, nobody's being graded on your ability to pray or, or, or say something in an eloquent way. You know, God, as a father, just, just like we do with our kids, we just love to talk with our kids and to hear their voice and to have a relationship with them. And I think God, our Heavenly Father, wants the exact same thing for you and for me. So there's private prayer, and I would encourage you to have a time of your own where you are alone speaking with the Lord and listening for his voice. Uh, that voice, you know, listening to God's voice can be in silence, but I think so often I, I personally listen better with his word open and just reading it. You know, I'm praying and just saying, Lord, before I read your word, I want you to speak to me. This is your word. I want to hear your voice. And then my prayers, you know, I come, we all do it, we, we have our needs, there's things that we're worried about, there's the, the current events that are going on in our lives that may be creating stress and all of that. If you need to, get a piece of paper, just write all that stuff down and lay it over here, and then just say, God, speak to me, and read, and let him. See, see what I need to do is I need to hear from him more than he needs to hear from me. Can I tell him anything he doesn't already know? Am I going to go, God, you're never going to believe what happened. He's going to go, oh, yeah, I, I already knew. I, I knew from before the foundation of the earth that that was going to happen in that moment on that day. And so, yes, we can come and we can, you know, the, the Peter writes this verse, you know, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Do that. You need to do that. Get in his presence and say, God, I'm so overwhelmed right now, I can't think straight. I'm so burdened. I don't know how I'm going to get through this day or this week or that event that's coming up in my future that I'm so concerned about. Tell him, but then turn your attention to his word. Say, it's more important that I hear from you. God, how should I respond to this situation, to these circumstances, to those people? And let God's word speak to you. And that's what these people were doing in the early church. They were coming together. They were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. We find this wonderful verse that Jesus gave us, Matthew chapter 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Isn't that an inviting thing for us? Inviting us into the presence of God to pour out our hearts before him and to seek his face. Well, as the early church began to do this, and they're just trying to figure out how do we go forward, you know, with what's happened in our lives, you know, uh, Paul wrote an amazing verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. 
Well, that's what's happened for these people. And that's what's happened for everyone here who has believed in Christ. So what do we do with that now? How do we go forward in this newness of life that we have received from the, the presence of Jesus? We do these things. We begin to place ourselves under the authority of God's word. We, we meet together. We study God's word. That's why we do all this stuff we do, all these announcements every week that I make about the men's Bible studies and the women's Bible studies and, and the time of prayer. Don't you see how that fits in everything that we're doing? You know, we call this thing we're doing today, the, our Acts 2.42 communion and potluck, is just our attempt to find a way to do what the Scriptures did there in this, this early church as it was founded. And it says here, one of the results of doing this in verse 43, of doing all these things, meeting together, and the idea is togetherness. Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, as they were meeting together and they were being strengthened and encouraged in the word of God and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and of prayers, God was doing a new work in their hearts. And what was it? There was a fear of God. There was a holy reverential awe of who God was that was in their lives. And notice it says, then fear came upon every soul, not just those who believed, the 3,120 or however many there were, but upon every soul. So you see, one of the effects of what God was doing in and through the lives of his people was the name of God. The word of God was being spread. The renown of God was being made known as these people who were now filled with the spirit and being filled with the word of God and being strengthened and encouraged. Now they're, they're going out and, and what they're doing every day in their lives. And, and people are like, man, you know, you used to be like the, the most sourpuss person ever. And now you have a spring in your step and a smile on your face. And what is going on with you? And they're like, I met Jesus. My sins were forgiven. And they begin to talk about the most natural thing in the world that's happened to them. The best thing that's ever happened to them was meeting Jesus. And so fear, the fear of God is spreading. me, And that's a good thing. And then it says, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. I believe that's one of those things that God still wants to do today, but it was so necessary in that day because there was no word of God. And so Jesus said to those apostles, didn't he? He says, you're gonna, the things I do, you're going to do greater things than these because of the Spirit of God coming upon you. And remember what Jesus said, the ministry of the Spirit would testify to Jesus himself. So this wasn't wacky, it wasn't weird, it wasn't some strange thing, it wasn't magic. It was, it was the Spirit of God working in and through the Word of God in the lives of his people. And these apostles were doing what they saw Jesus did doing. And we're going to begin to get into it in chapter 3. We're going to begin to see what happened as the Spirit of God was moving in and through the lives of his people. And so this fear came upon people. And in verse 44, now all who believed were together and they had all things in common. So there's this idea of togetherness. And I think that's another aspect of the church that when we gather, when we come together on Sundays or whenever the designated times are that we meet together, if you have a, a small group or a home fellowship or on Wednesday night or in the men's or the women's Bible studies, whatever, when we come together, that there is a sense of unity among the church. And that was one of the, the marks of the Spirit of God working in the lives of his people. There was a sense of unity among the believers, a like-mindedness not about politics and all of that, but about the things of God. I could care less what you think on, on you know, a given subject, you know, politically or whatever. I mean, yes, we love one another and we care for one another, but it's the things of God that matter, right? And, and even if we have divergent or polar opposite views on something, we can still have fellowship, and I think that's one of the things that's happened these last two or three years in the church is churches have become polarized and there's churches over here that are of this particular political persuasion. And, and when a church is being identified by those things, we've lost something, folks. Because we're not to be the, the church of the right or the church of the left or whatever. We're just the church of God. We, we are his people. Just the sheep of his hand. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. So they had, there was a unity. 
And they came together and there was this, this thing happening at that time, which is you know, they began to sort of pull all their resources. And I believe this is one of those unique things that the Spirit of God did then. And we don't necessarily have to do that today where they came together, they sold everything and just kind of pulled everything, put all the money in one bank account and that kind of a thing. I don't think that's something you necessarily carry over to today, but the, the idea, the principle is that when the church saw someone in need, that they reached out and they helped them. That's important, right? That matters. And so they, verse 45, they sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. You know, one of the things that the Spirit of God and the Word of God did in the lives of these new believers was a sense of generosity among them. And so when they saw someone in need, they, their heart was moved. You know, Jesus was moved with compassion, right? When he saw people having a need. And so that's what was being explained and taught. And that's what the Spirit was doing among these people. So in verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple. So now they're, they're going to the temple every day. They've merged uh, the spiritual life of, of Israel and Jerusalem into their daily lives. And they've said, this, 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 all this stuff is about Jesus. And so they began to go to the temple daily. And notice it says that they are with one accord. That means they are in agreement and that they are together. And they were breaking bread from house to house. Again, something I feel like we've lost in the modern church. You know, I think we need to open up our homes and begin to invite, invite people over. Just, hey, come over, let's, let's get together. Let's have some fellowship. Let's share a meal together. And I love when, when here's what happens, at least it's been my experience, been our experience. Uh, we have people over, we sit down, we start talking, and then all of a sudden somebody says, so tell me your story. How'd you come to Christ? What would God do in your life? And that's how we get to know one another. And these things were happening in the early church breaking bread from house to house. And notice it says they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. In other words, the meal wasn't a big production that somebody stressed out over. The point was getting together. The point was the fellowship. Hey, call and order some pizzas or whatever. Or yeah, fine, make something. Just pull out a jar of sauce and throw some spaghetti on. Doesn't matter. Get together. The fellowship, the gladness of heart, the simplicity you know, there's this amazing verse in uh, 2 Corinthians, I didn't write it down, where it said, uh, Paul, Paul was speaking of Eve, and he says that Eve was deceived by the serpent or by Satan, and it says that he, he led her astray from the simplicity and purity, or, and, and this is what he was saying about the church. He says, I fear that less just as the serpent deceived Eve, you have been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And here these people ate their food with simplicity, with gladness of heart. And this is what God wants for his people, for his church. And so these people were, were doing that. In Acts chapter 9, we have sort of an illustration of this. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walked and we're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were being multiplied. What happened in Acts 9? Paul, the biggest antagonist of the church, the, the man who had you know, papers from the Sanhedrin you know, to go out and persecute anyone who believed, you know, had gone astray from Judaism and had believed in this Jesus. He had been saved. Jesus saved him there on the road to Damascus. And what happened? The church was being edified because God did this amazing thing. He took the biggest enemy of the church, converted him, saved him, and now he's the biggest proponent of the church. God can do these things. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the church was doing what? They were magnifying the name of God. They were worshiping him. They were coming together around the word of God. They were having this amazing fellowship together. They were breaking bread together. They were doing all of these things. And notice what it says, praising God and having favor with all the people. So God was now 
giving them favor with other people because these people were now at peace. These people were not striving. They weren't stark raving lunatics. They weren't Bible thumpers as we might think of today. They were just people filled with the love of God, filled with the Spirit of God. And it says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord did it. You know, the word pastor means shepherd. Someone has once said, um, and I, I believe with all my heart, that healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. So if, taking the farm analogy, just put a bunch of sheep in the pen, the boys and the girls, they'll figure it out, right? It's going to happen. And you, you may have started with four or five or six, and now you, next year you've got 25. What happened? Healthy sheep begat healthy sheep. And what did the shepherd do? Did the shepherd produce the sheep? No. At best, what the shepherd did was provide a healthy environment. What did the shepherd do? He fed the sheep. And that's what we have here as a model for us in the New Testament. You know, these shepherds were the apostles. These first shepherds were the apostles. But as we move through the New Testament, we see elders and pastors being appointed and being raised up. And the interesting thing is that there was natural reproduction Shepherds don't produce sheep. Sheep produce sheep. It says in Psalm 79, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture and we will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. Psalm 100, know that the Lord, he is God. I read this at the beginning of our worship. He who has made us and not we ourselves, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You see, we belong to him. We answer to him. You see, our job is leaders as pastors and elders and deacons is to feed the sheep, to take care of the sheep. You know, God has given sheep into our charge and we are to be faithful stewards of what God has given to us. But you're not my sheep. You're his sheep. I'm his sheep. We all belong to him. You know, in the second we see someone in the church lording it over people, and laying a heavy burden upon them and creating this legalistic environment, run for the hills, folks. Find a place where Jesus is the head of his church and not some talking head. The church is not an organization. It is an organism. The church is organic. If God is working in and through the lives of his people, then his people are having this effect upon one another as we love one another as we serve one another. I can't begin to tell you if you weren't here yesterday to experience what happened with this event, this celebration of life. The church came together and served one another. And these people saw it. And I, and I hope and I pray that the seeds of, of God's grace and love and mercy were planted in their hearts. To keep things straight in our own minds, in Ephesians 1 it says, and he that is God put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all, in all things he may have the preeminence. You see, Jesus is the head of the church. The second we have people somehow being elevated uh, in the eyes of the people, that's not God. We're here to make him great. It's just like John the baptizer said. He said, I must decrease that he might increase. You see, that is always our role, especially in leadership, especially in leading worship. Our job is to step out of the way and to make him great. That's the way it should be. Colossians says something similar, Colossians 1.18. And he that is Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Sorry, I think I already read that. Ephesians 4.11. And he himself, that is Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the purpose, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to unity of the faith, 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That'll happen when we meet him in heaven. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up into all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, so all of us are important together, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, all of us should be together and participating, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's what these people were doing in the first century church as they came together. And it was happening organically. There wasn't someone there with a clipboard organizing going, okay, you have the gift of helps. There's the broom closets over there. You have the gift of mercy. You should be over here uh, helping people who are sick or have little kids. And there was none of that. The Spirit of God did the organizing. The Spirit of God did the bestowing of gifts upon people. You see, our job is to understand and to recognize those gifts as God has given them to us and then turn around and use them to give them back to God for his glory and to serve him by serving his people. James wrote this word, James chapter 5, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You see, this is the church. We're coming together. We're looking out for one another. We become aware of a need. Hey, so-and-so over here, they're sick, they're, they're ill. Call up, you know, send word to the, the, the local leadership. Hey, can you go pray for brother or sister so-and-so? And they're in need. And, and yeah, we should do that. And go over there physically. Lay hands on them. Pray for them. Anoint them with oil. That God might be magnified. You see, we do it so that God might get the glory. It's not, I mean, who are we? We're just people. We're just the vehicles, the instruments through whom he works. And James finished that passage by saying, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. You see, this should be happening in the body of Christ. Too often, what we do is we conceal our sin out of shame and we're afraid to talk to somebody else because the first thing we think of is this, it's going to go into the gossip mill and everyone's going to know. Well, it's not supposed to be that way. And I hope and I pray that it's not that way. But we are, this is part of the organic nature of the church. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. This is, this is the body of Christ operating together, loving one another. And then he says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, God makes it known, I think, who, who are the prayer warriors in the church? Who are the people who can be trusted? Who are the people who love, who, who are concerned for you? church, as we come to bring this passage to a close this morning, the gathering of God's called out ones ought to be a place that we can invite people, that we can feel comfortable inviting people. And I just want to say to you, not as a, as a burden, but just, you know, pray about inviting people to church and to Bible studies. People need to hear about Christ. They need to Hear the word of God. I mean, in all of our Bible studies, we endeavor to just look into the word of God and see what he has for us and keep our eyes focused on him. You know, we're not here to exalt ourselves. None of this is building a portfolio so you can realize we're the best church in the community. It's none of that kind of stuff. We're just here to honor God and to love Jesus. If we want to be the best at anything, it's being the best at loving Jesus. That's what we want to be known for. So invite people to church. Sit down and have a meal with them. You know, I'll sit down and talk to anybody. The world's going crazy, isn't it? Personal pronouns, purple hair, you know, whatever. You got to see beyond that stuff. That stuff doesn't matter. There's a soul in there. Ministry is always about people. God cares about people. 
He doesn't care about that stuff, the facade, you know, how they look, how they act, you know, how, who they identify with or as. Because all of us one day are going to stand before God, right? All of us. So if, if, if I'm born again, if the love of God's been shed abroad in my heart through the Spirit of God, I ought to be concerned about loving people. Because if you love God, you have to love people. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So invite people. Talk to them. Invite them to church. Invite them to your Bible study. Jesus, at Revelation 22, the end of the book, wrote, said this, I, Jesus, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. The churches, the testimony has to be of Jesus. You see, it's all about Jesus. The next verse in Revelation 22 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. We ought to be, as it were, walking around with a, a tray of food and a glass of water. Who's hungry? Who's thirsty? But you see, what's on that tray is the bread of life, and what's in that cup is the living water that comes from Jesus himself. You see, essential church, as revealed to us here in Acts chapter 2, is this kind of church. We're not concerned about our branding, our color scheme, our website, our app. We're concerned about Jesus. Amen. Lord, this morning we love you, and as we come to your table, we just uh, quiet our hearts before you, and we settle down, and we just say, Lord, let it be about you. So as we remember who you are, your table's for all people. There's no membership role here. It's your membership role. Those who are, whose names are written in your book of life, that's the only role. That's the only record. And so we come together this morning to partake together, to celebrate your goodness, to celebrate your sacrifice, to celebrate your love. And this morning, just let me say as we close that if there are any here who don't know Jesus, you've never trusted him, then you've, I trust that you've been hearing and, and sensing the knock of him upon your heart this morning. Would you just bow your heart and just yield to him and just invite him in and say, Lord, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And as you do that, he will come in. And guess what? Now this table is for you. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, Lord, as we sing a song and we pass out the elements and we partake together, may you bless us, may you fill us, may we be renewed this morning in the Spirit. And may this Bible study on what the first church was and how they were established and, and what you did in and through them, may this touch and affect our hearts, Lord. May we be your people, the sheep of your pasture. And may we every day, Lord, we pray, please be more in love with you and more thankful to you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.